Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription. 12 books, handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one, wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. In many ways, Bewilderment, the latest novel from Richard Powers, is a book about separations, the pain they cause us and how they may or may not be bridged. There's a psychological separation between scientist Theo and his nine-year-old neurodivergent son, Robin. Then there's a very bodily separation between Theo and Robin and Elissa, their activist wife and mother, whose sudden death two years previously remains raw and whose absence is still deeply mourned. There's also the moral separation between the actions of a country's body politic and the humanity it professes to value, the separation between humanity and all the other species on our planet, and the separation between our planet and the other Earth-like rocks in our solar system and beyond, which, despite supposedly existing in their billions, remain doggedly, despairingly silent. One of the things that I think makes Bewilderment an important and singular novel is that, Unlike many contemporary literary novelists who either ignore science completely or else treat it with an almost fanatical suspicion, Richard Powers at once regards scientific advances with a precise, critical eye, while also embracing them not just as inspirations, but as inherent to the human experience, leaning into the sense of oddness and wonderment they can provoke. This is perhaps just one of the reasons that the 2021 Booker Prize judges awarded bewilderment a place on their current shortlist, the second time in a row for Richard Powers. Bewilderment is one of the most fascinating and moving novels I've read this year, and I'm so happy to say that Richard Powers joins me to discuss it today. Richard, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be back, Adam. Thanks for the marvelous intro. It's uh, it's lovely to hear uh, the the book framed in that way. Oh well, I you know I do my best. <laughs> um, as the um, introduction made clear, Bewilderment is a book that weaves together a variety of subjects and and thematic elements that may at first seem only vaguely connected to uh, to the reader. Was there one of these elements that acted as a way for you into the book and into the story, or perhaps not necessarily a way in, but which acted as a kind of lodestar during the, the process of um, composition? I guess there was. Uh, <clears throat> you mentioned the way in which the, the dramatic conflict of the book deploys over several kinds of separation, Mm -hmm. Uh, But behind that separation, the thing that drives the drama of the book forward is the attempt to to bridge it through Mm -hmm. love, through identification, and through empathy. And many of the attempts in that uh, regard uh, that are dramatized in Bewilderment uh, first became important to me while I was writing the overstory. Mm. Uh, so the years that I spent <clears throat> writing and, and thinking about that book were years 
spent wrestling this question with this question of how can we humans uh, break out of this culture of separation and exceptionalism and find some kind of empathetic connection back to the more than human, to the mm. rest of this living world that's all around us. So that was in the back of my mind, and I was uh, priming myself with this. Uh, with that challenge. However, I would say the proximal start of the book uh, may have been my discovery a few years back of this unusual technology that is in its infancy, uh, but it is a it it is a, a, a real therapeutic technology that's still being explored uh, called decoded neurofeedback. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I read about this technique, which involves uh, recording the brain states of one human being while they are involved in a task or learning, uh, you know, a, 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 a technique of some kind or uh, cultivating an emotional state, and then using that recording as a template mm-hmm. for another person who is also being recorded in real time or scanned in real time and who is receiving feedback uh, that moves them closer or farther away from the, the, the neural state of the initial subject, almost like a, uh, like a high-tech game of blind man's bluff where the <laughs> machine is calling out to the person, you're getting warmer, you're getting colder, you're getting... Uh, and when I read about this uh, infant uh, in a nascent technique, the hairs on the back of my neck went up because it, mm. it's... It, it would not take too much development to create something that really is almost like a, a telepathy machine, or as mm. as it ends up uh, being called in the in the novel, an empathy machine. Right. And I guess I had that in in the back of my head uh, for years as I was finishing up the overstory, uh, thinking, well, you know, th- this almost sounds like a Black Mirror story. You know, it almost mm. sounds like a. a a near future sci-fi uh, that could you know, could lead in all kinds of uh, evocative directions, and I think when I finished the overstory, and I realized that I had written a book that puts forward this idea that we need a new way of thinking about ourselves here on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, or an old way, let's say, re- recovering and re- re- revitalizing, uh, rehabilitating old ways of thinking about the relationship between the human and the, and the more than human. This uh, memory of, of, of this technique uh, arose, and I thought, well, this could be a place where uh, a, a little germ that could set, set a story in, in motion. Mm. And we'll get on to... Um the implications that has for um, our protagonist um, in a while. But I'm interested by your reference to uh, to Black Mirror mm. there, because um, I think Black Mirror is a wonderful TV series, but it is a TV series which acts as a warning mm-hmm. uh, about technology. Mm. Um, I think uh, from memory, I can't think of any particular episode of that series which is in any way ambivalent about the technological progress that it uh, represents or conversely presents it positively. 
Um, That's true. Almost all the episodes are dystopian. Uh, mm. Look at look at the incredible mess that these new affordances and these new tools are leaving us in uh, when we allow them to go to their conclusion. And in a way, bewilderment does invert that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The, te- the technology holds out the hope of recovering and reviving old kinds of things that we did through other kinds of means in the past. And it's actually the, uh, the uh, encroachment of an anti-scientific uh, socio-political culture that, that mm-hmm. puts an end to that possibility in the book, not to give too much away. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. Um, and I'd just like to, to, to stay with that idea of the empathy machine as well, because when I was reading, I, I snagged on that because I've heard this term deployed twice before, actually, once by, I think, uh, the film critic, uh, Roger Ebert, who talked mm. about cinema as being an empathy machine. Yeah. And once by, I think it was Neil Gaiman who talked about books as being empathy machines. And um, it made me reflect that in a way, perhaps that is one of the reasons that certain novelists do react maybe with a defensiveness towards technological advances, scientific advances of this kind, because they almost are sort of encroaching on the the territory of art in a way that may be perhaps makes artists feel uncomfortable in some way. I have no doubt that you're right. Uh, the, the introduction of every new technology retroactively changes who we think we are and what we're able to do. And it also destabilizes and resets the playing field for all the previous technologies that mm-hmm. we've already become comfortable with and that we've already assimilated into our lives. But when you take that kind of long lens uh, historical view of the way in which uh, our amazing capacity for projective conscious uh, invention uh, has perpetually transformed ourselves and uh, the potentials and perils of the world at large, mm-hmm. uh, you begin to realize that the home team or the, you know, the, the vested interests were themselves the destabilizing technology at some previous mm-hmm. level of history. And every technology, because it has both these good and bad uh, affordances, the black mirror-like dystopian potentials, and also the utopian potentials of art, mm-hmm. uh, you need to uh, t- to distance yourself a little bit from, from any too quick narrative overlay on what it is uh, that we might or may not be able to do with these technologies. I mean, Socrates was terrified of what writing was going to do to society right. as a technology, right? It's going to, it's going to destroy our memories. Mm-hmm. It's going to completely, you know, uh, destabilize social norms. And it did. It did all mm-hmm. those things, right? Uh, and, and after, after we moved into the new world that writing permitted, we became different kinds of creatures. Mm-hmm. And that became the status quo. And we were confronted with the next revolution down the road. And writing became the thing that needed to be protected from, uh, from other technologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when film first came out, it was a tremendous threat to to those who had invested in in a verbal culture and print culture uh and 
when I was a young boy, it was st still completely common for people to, to poo-poo the idea of visual narrative. You know, it'll never mm. really match the depths and intensities of print narrative. And here we are in an age where, uh, you know, visual narrative is the status quo. And one, one has to actually uh, commit oneself uh, in an unusual way to recover all of the, the pleasures and possibilities of, of print literacy mm. and print narrative. I never believed the diagnoses the doctors settled on my son. When a condition gets three different names over as many decades, when it requires two subcategories to account for completely contradictory symptoms, when it goes from non-existent to the country's most commonly diagnosed childhood disorder in the course of one generation, when two different physicians want to prescribe three different medications, there's something wrong. My Robin didn't always sleep well. He wet the bed a few times a season, and it hunched him over with shame. Noises unsettled him. He liked to turn the sound way down on the television, too low for me to hear. He hated when the cloth monkey wasn't on its perch in the laundry room above the washing machine. He poured every dollar of allowance into a trading game, collect them all, but he kept the untouched cards in numeric order in plastic sleeves in a special binder. He could smell a fart from across a crowded movie theater. He'd focus for hours on minerals of Nevada or the kings and queens of England, anything in tables. He sketched constantly and well, laboring over fine details lost on me intricate buildings and machines for a year, then animals and plants. His pronouncements were off-the-wall mysteries to everyone except me. He could quote whole scenes from movies, even after a single viewing. He rehearsed memories endlessly, and every repetition of the details made him happier. When he finished a book he liked, he'd start it again immediately from page one. He melted down and exploded over nothing. But he could just as easily be overcome by joy. On rough nights when Robin retreated to my bed, he wanted to be on the side farthest from the endless terrors outside the window. His mother had always wanted the safe side, too. He daydreamed, had trouble with deadlines, and yes, he refused to focus on things that didn't interest him but he never fidgeted or dashed around or talked without stopping. And he could hold still for hours with things he loved. Tell me, what deficit matched up with all that? What disorder explained him? You used the, um, the expression, uh, different kinds of creatures. Um, and that just... Um struck something in me because it, it made me think that that is perhaps the way that some people might think of Robin uh, yes. in the book. So Robin uh, Byrne, who is Theo's nine-year-old son. And I referred to him in the introduction as um, neurodivergent, but then it did actually occur to me that perhaps even that term is not something which um, particularly Theo would 
necessarily accept because it seems perhaps to suggest a sort of a definitive otherness that Robin is a mm-hmm. different kind of creature to mm-hmm. normal people like Theo and Robin's school teachers, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um One thing that seems central to um, bewilderment is an investigation of what it means to be, and again, I put this in inverted commas, neurodivergent. Mm-hmm. Um, was that quite a, a difficult subject to to approach, both sort of exploring it from all its angles, but also handling it sensitively, knowing that um, perhaps your, certain of your readers might have experience of it in a way that you did not? Uh, absolutely. It, it is a tremendously charged uh, subject. But for that reason, I think it makes a, a kind of essential uh, point of departure for, for, mm-hmm. for this narrative, certainly. Uh, Robin is nine years old. He lost his mother two years before the, the book begins. Uh, and so that means uh, he has lived for two years. I mean, to, to, to lose a, a, a mother at the age of seven is to introduce all kinds of terrors and fears mm-hmm. uh, uh, and anger uh, into a child wherever that child starts on the various spectra or normal distribution curves by which we measure ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, Robin is in trouble. He is an exceptionally intense boy. Mm-hmm. He's capable of great love and uh, joy, but he has also violently attacked his uh, fellow school children. Mm. He has uh, uh, been, he's become increasingly uh, susceptible to outbursts of rage that, you know, that result in physical damage of one mm-hmm. kind or another. Uh, and, and Theo is in over his head. He does mm-hmm. not know how to protect this boy from the world or from himself. And he also knows that there are extremely distinctive things about his son. Mm-hmm. His, his son is able to uh, concentrate intensely for long periods of time to draw uh, animals and plants with a kind of uncanny accuracy uh, that, that seems spooky from the outside, outside that, um, uh, that, that kind of uh, moral absolutism that is a function of a lot of children mm-hmm. uh, is exceptionally heightened with Robin. He, he is overwhelmed uh, by noises and stimulus. He doesn't really understand people. Uh, and, and so all these are, 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 are real. And, mm-hmm. and they have made it impossible for these, uh, this father and this son to move forward uh, in, a, in, a, in a peaceful and productive way. When mm-hmm. Theo goes out to get a medical understanding of his son, he receives more than one diagnosis. Mm. And actually this, uh, uh, I knew this was not uncommon going into the book because I did, uh, I, I did speak uh, with parents uh, who were confronting similar situations with their own children. And I, I did uh, read up about uh, the current state of, of diagnosing uh, uh, mental health in, in young children. Uh, and it, it is not uncommon uh, to... Uh, 
to have overlapping diagnostic categories, to have uh, competing diagnoses. And that is a result in some ways of, of, of how uh, nascent our own understanding of, of the brain and the developing brain in particular really is. And this troubles Theo, and it especially troubles him because uh, in the United States, uh, behavioral problems in children and uh, uh, neurodivergence is often uh, uh, responded to with medication. And Theo, for better or for worse, uh, is troubled by this. He feels his son is, is too young, uh, his brain is still developing, and it's too early to, to begin to experiment uh, uh, on him with psychoactive drugs. And he makes the decision that he, he will try uh, to do whatever is in his power to respond to Robin's trauma as uh, a psychological one that can be intervened with uh, uh, through uh, uh, day-to-day interventions and actions uh, rather than uh, putting him on a, a regimen of psychoactive drugs. And that decision does have consequences in the, in, in the story. Uh, the, the book is narrated by Theo, so we get his own confessions about how uh, improvisatory and uncertain uh, he is with regard uh, to this challenging boy and how being a single parent uh, uh, has left him uncertain about his own parenting skills and uh, a bit adrift. Uh, and it, it's, it's a crisis I think that uh, any parent would feel, and especially raising a child now, uh, because the kinds of things that Robin uh, acts out, uh, the intensities and the angers and the rages are... Uh, if anything, becoming more frequent and more uh, recognizable to parents as uh, they are bringing up children in a, in a world that is terrifying and that is uncertain. I mean, the, the, uh, the degree to which eco-trauma has filtered into children all across uh, 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 all the differences uh, by which we measure children uh, is astounding. And so here you have a boy and you can account for his anger and his fear uh, because of, through his personal psychohistory, you can account for it medically because there are ways in which he is measurably different from the, 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 the median or the mode of, of the curve of children. But you can also account for it because the world itself is off kilter, is not well. The book becomes a kind of meditation on difference and diversity. And you know, Robin's principal anxiety is, how can you adults be allowing this mass die-off of other kinds of creatures? In fact, not just allowing, but causing this mass die-off of other creatures and not do something about it. That's a tough question to answer, but it's a valid question. And I think a tough question for um, for Theo as well, because as you've just described, he finds himself almost in a sort of triangulated tension between these three different elements. So there is a part of him that recognizes that his son 
perhaps has a condition, but because he's had multiple diagnoses and perhaps because a part of him doesn't want to admit that his son is ill and does need treatment, he sort of pulls against that. Uh, And yet at the same time, there is, as you say, this idea of if society is sick, maybe Robin is reacting to it in a perfectly healthy fashion uh, in that kind of R.D. Lang, um, you know, don't treat the don't treat the patient, treat the society. And then on top of it, there's this idea that at one moment he says, uh, uh, Theo says that everyone on this fluke little planet is on the spectrum Mm -hmm. and that life is something that we need to stop correcting. So there's potentially this idea that, in fact, Robin's divergence is not a divergence from any genuinely existing norm. And I think the we really get a sense of Theo's difficulty as a parent of deciding where to locate himself in relation to these three factors, particularly as he's doing it alone. Well, and that's exactly, you know, that that is exactly one of the uh, principal revelations that this narrative conflict unfolds. Not only uh, is Robin's difference uh, something that doesn't need curing, but it is in itself a, 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 an essential, a deeply valuable and meaningful thing. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to make explicit uh, what uh, our listeners probably have uh, already leaped to by association, uh, Greta Thunberg was a great inspiration for this mm-hmm. book. And uh, this is a girl who has received a diagnosis of, of autism, but who herself declares her own difference not as a liability, but as she puts it, her superpower. Mm-hmm. And just as Robin can plainly see what the adult world cannot, which is that the immense richness and diversity of the more than human world is not something that has to be monetized or eliminated, but is in fact the primary source of natural capital and meaning that we have on this planet, so does Theo gradually come to understand that his boy's difference is also a source of great richness mm-hmm. and that if we are to move forward out of this culture that looks as at difference as a threat, that looks at difference as something that has to be pathologized and normatized and corrected, it is going to be by using the full spectrum of the full array of human difference and, and human potential as a, mm. as a positive and a mutually uh, interdependent thing. Mm. One of the um, ways that Theo does try to to bridge the, the gap between him and uh, Robin is by visiting other planets. Um, perhaps uh, in order for our listeners to, to, to get a sense of what I, what I mean by that, could you just introduce to us the area of study that, uh, that Theo has and which clearly inspires his, uh, his attempt to reach his son through, through these um, celestial journeys. Theo, who is in his late 30s, is an astrobiologist. Mm-hmm. And that's a field that wasn't even a thing when I was Theo's age. Uh, <laughs> it did not exist. And it has, it has uh, emerged and uh, uh, it is starting to mature now just over the last several decades. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's emerged in concurrence with the, uh, uh, the discovery of and the, now the accelerating search for exoplanets. 
But astrobiology is more than just a meditation on or search for life beyond Earth. It's a broadening of this of of the fundamental questions of biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's attempting to situate the questions of biology in a, a physical and chemical context that goes beyond the one that we have assumed is necessary for life, mm-hmm. beyond the one case that we have been reasoning from uh, up until now. And so uh, astrobiology is asking the, 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 the largest and most fundamental questions about life. What does it require to, uh, to begin? Uh, mm-hmm. How frequent or, or unusual or rare might it be? What are the ranges, the extreme ranges under which it can come about? Uh, and Theo himself, his day job consists of making computer models that will allow us to look at the space of the atmospheres of these new planets that we're discovering mm-hmm. and see if there's any kind of uh, signature or any kind of mm-hmm. fingerprint of life. And even the question of how we would recognize mm-hmm. what a fingerprint of life would be uh, needs to be addressed by this field of astrobiology. Because as I said earlier, we've been reasoning from only one case. We know what mm-hmm. life looks like here. But what might it look elsewhere where the conditions are very, very different? Interestingly, one of the very few things that calms Robin down and allows him to feel encouraged uh, about life and all its potentials is to travel with his father mm-hmm. in place of bedtime stories, to travel across the universe and go in their shared Im- imaginations to these other places that are very plausible uh, places that resemble the kinds of planets that uh, Theo's discipline has been discovering and and exploring, but to then uh, together ask what might life be trying to do there? How Mm -hmm. might it be um, frustrated or enabled? And once again, this becomes a meditation on difference and diversity. Uh, Are we part of something larger? How how widely can this adventure vary? How big is this experiment? How different from us might it look? And ultimately, how might we learn to identify and empathize uh, with this project of life when we've seen how much bigger than our own uh, venue uh, uh, it performs uh, on? There's um, two things that sort of inform... Um, Theo's uh, interest in uh, or, or the, his creation of um, these other planets and journeying there with Robin. There's, of course, his, his day job, as you say, but also his um, historical obsession with science fiction. There's a moment where he says that he had 2,000 paperbacks scattered through the house over 30 years of, of reading from them. Um, and then when I read that, the, the paperbacks I imagined, and I don't know if this is what you had in mind, were those sort of 1970s, early Mm. 1980s, slight experimental science fiction um, produced by uh, people, I guess, like Michael Moorcock and uh, Mm -hmm. that sort of generation of writers, Mm. um, which seem to be, at least we noticed this at the bookstore, having a bit of a second wind now. People seem to be revisiting them as visionary and as perhaps overlooked sort of literary treasures. And I'm just curious to know, are they part of your literary heritage? Did they help shape 
Richard Powers, a novelist we we know now, like over the decades, or are they something which perhaps you've you come recently to to discover and to sort of build into your into your writing life? I'm delighted to hear that uh, that you're seeing a bit of a resurgence uh, in this genre in the shop because uh, uh, that's certainly the trajectory that I've been on personally. When I was young. I adored this genre of the planetary romance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm of an age uh, uh, where uh, the genre was reaching its zenith in some ways as I was uh, discovering how to be a reader. And mm-hmm. you know, in, in my early teens, uh, falling in love with easy travel to other planets uh, was, you know, it was just so much a formative part of uh you know, my, lear- my learning uh, about where books can take us. Uh, I fell away from it as, as, I, as I went through my teen years, partly for all the wrong kind of snobbish reasons. I, mm. I, I wanted to make myself serious. I wanted to, uh, to, to pursue uh, the most admirable kinds of literary aspirations. Mm-hmm. And there was this idea that somehow uh, the planetary romance in particular and science fiction in general was uh, somehow a a, a second-class citizen because it wasn't primarily concerned with psychology, Hmm. which of course is the, is, is the prime concern of literary fiction, but it was exploring all these other questions, these material and mechanical and philosophical questions. And science fiction is very closely related to the novel of ideas. And so I, I kind of did this thing where I thought, well, I'll put away childish things. Mm -hmm. And it really only wasn't until uh, later in my adulthood that I realized, you know, this is a, is, a, a huge uh, repertoire of the mm-hmm. human uh, to travel to another planet is to do all kinds of things. I mean, when mm-hmm. you change the rules of interaction, uh, you estrange us from uh, what we've normalized and taken for granted. And you put all of the questions of existence uh, on the table again. And of course, to travel to other planets is to travel to other people mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the, the, the character of a place, the affordances, the temperament, uh, is very much a kind of allegorical uh, um, reworking of the tremendous challenge and, and uh, strangeness of trying to connect to someone who is not you. And, and so I went back to the genre and I... And I went to some old favorites like Ursula Le Guin and, mm. and James Tiptree Jr. And, and, and all kinds of uh, uh, people uh, who I would have read when I was younger and found in them, a, again, a, a, a brand new urgency and, and validity. And I also saw the degrees to which this genre actually has its roots in 19th century forms. Like mm. uh, like Melville and island romances and this, right. this the kind of literature of colonialism where cultures were colliding and and you know we we had to confront uh, the 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 darkness and the barbarity of our own cultures that we couldn't see because we mm-hmm. had normalized them because we were uh, col- you know b- bumping up violently against ways of life that were deeply profoundly different from our own yeah and there's another there there's another way in which 
my fascination with the planetary romance uh, finds a, a formal outlet in bewilderment. Um, so yes, I, I did turn to classic science fiction texts like Olaf Stapledon's Star Maker, mm -hmm. where, where there isn't there, you know, there's zero attempt to create a character or to, mm -hmm. you know, to create a <laughs> drama or a plot or anything. It's just like, where the hell are we and what might be out there? And let's just go and let's explore what we hold dear by putting it into juxtaposition with all the other ways that life might arrange itself. Mm -hmm. So there was that. But I also remained deeply fascinated with this odd kind of micro chapter novel of ideas, picaresque, mm. um, uh, that, uh, you know, explored by people like uh, Italo Calvino, mm. uh, Ellen Lightman in a book like Einstein's Dreams. You know, these, these books were every chapter, and the chapter might be a page long or a page and a half, completely changes the rules of something. Mm. What, what if time uh, uh, was different at the top of a mountain than it was down in a valley, you know, and, and let's spin a world out of that. Um, you know, or, you know, the, 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 the kinds of explorations uh, that this, let's call it uh, avant-garde fiction, uh, uh, liked to explore and explored actually by challenging this idea that a book always had to be this kind of classic exposition, rising action, climax, uh, denouement. Mm -hmm. And I, I have always in my career have had one foot in the world of traditional realist psychological fiction mm -hmm. and one foot in the world of experimental fiction. Mm -hmm. And these are often seen by people as inimical things. Yeah. You have to choose, you know, whose mm -hmm. side are you on? How, you know, what's your reader contract? Uh, what are the rules of this game? And I've always, throughout my near 40-year career, my 13 books, been looking for ways of challenging the idea that these are separate, inimical kinds of things. And I've, I've, I've wanted to, to bring them into the same vessel. And in this book, I've found a way of using this micro-chapter whose advantages are estrangement and adventure and imagination, whose disadvantages are it's not developmental, it's not psychological, it's not, uh, it doesn't have conflict or drama in the way that our, you know, the stories that most readers have come to love have. Mm -hmm. But situating these, these little micro-chapter interludes into the story of this father and this son struggling to live on this planet, yeah. And indeed, when you look at these little chapters, they are not just intellectual excursions. Mm -hmm. They reveal in an oblique and an indirect way the hopes and the fears of these two lost boys who yeah. can't speak directly about, you know, how to how to uh, find and locate each other, but they can meet each other in these other places. Yeah. And in fact, they're not just intellectual excursions as well in as much as as you made reference to earlier this um having one foot in the so-called literary psychological world and one foot in the genre science fiction world um that you've been um plowing like the last 40 years in a way the world itself has kind of caught up with you so there's the, right. the profession of astrobiologist these are not just theoretical possibilities now if you take into account 
the vastness of the universe, the number of stars in it, the potential number of planets and Earth-like planets or potentially life-supporting planets orbiting them, these become reflections on what could actually be a physical existing reality too. Mm -hmm. And I think in a sense, that's where there's also a profound melancholy at the heart of the book is the silence that mm. we face uh, from from these planets. And this is something which Robin struggles with. This is something which Theo struggles with, this sense of life existing, almost uh, in a pure case of probability, we could say with quasi-certainty that life does exist mm. out there. Mm. And yet, because of the way the universe is expanding, because of... The, our means of communication, our means of understanding, our means of reception, we seem almost fated not to be able to to, to bridge these mm, gaps. Yeah. Let me let me start by just closing one parenthesis on what we were speaking about earlier with this division between literary fiction and speculative fiction. If it were the case, and it wasn't always the case, but if it were the case, indeed, that you know, from you know the the 30s through the 70s, speculative fiction uh, wasn't deeply concerned with the psychological. Uh, it is no longer the case, and while uh, speculative fiction was always asking essential questions, which is what do all these discoveries and technologies do to change what we think it means to be human? Uh, but now, by now, the, the, the practitioners have become so inventive and so diverse and so sophisticated uh, that that they are also asking all the questions that literary fiction is asking, which is how do we got how how do we navigate this kind of locked room of the self, and uh, you know how do we negotiate uh, you know massive differences between uh, individual values and individual temperaments. So yes, it is literary fiction that belatedly is uh, having to learn the lesson of that part of. Uh, the question of human existence that they've been neglecting uh, ra rather than the other way around. With regard to this uh, question of who we are, where we are, uh, are we alone? These are foundational questions. Uh, we've been asking these questions since we've emerged as a species with the, the form of consciousness uh, that uh, we have uh, evolved uh, into. And they, the, the answers to these questions uh, have lain outside of our reach for most of human history. And now we're at this astonishing moment where the answers are coming very close. Uh, to set the context for uh, what you were talking about earlier, what, uh, what uh, people have referred to as the great silence, there's a wonderful story about uh, Enrico Fermi, uh, who was having lunch with colleagues at Los Alamos back in 1950, I think it was. And uh, the, the, it, it was just becoming widely appreciated just how big the universe is and how densely uh, uh, populated with celestial bodies uh, it is. Not, not densely in terms of physical space, but uh, in terms of total numbers. Uh, and... I think it's grown even larger uh, since then. But uh, we now know 
that the, the, the world, that the universe uh, is about 14 billion years old and that there are a hundred billion uh, or more galaxies. That is, there, you know, there, there are on the order of a hundred billion or more galaxies. And each of these galaxies has on the order of a hundred billion or more stars. And in recent years, we've uh, demonstrated that each one of these stars probably has at least one or more planets. So those are some pretty large numbers. And with a, with a universe that's three times older than Earth and incalculably full of Earth-like places, we are forced to ask the same question that Fermi asked back at lunch in 1950, which is, where is everybody? Right? And it's, it's a question that Robin and Theo uh, uh, play with as well. Uh, it is possible that, that Theo's discipline will answer this question tomorrow or in January when, when uh, you know, the next generation of telescope launches or 10 years from now. Uh, but on relatively short order, it could become clear that actually biology is a natural byproduct of physics and chemistry and planetary geology. And it is ubiquitous. And it, 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 it has happened everywhere. And uh, that, the answer, that definitive answer will change who we think we are. I mean, look, we're still strongly under the influence of a culture that says there was a special divinity who made us in his image, right? As a singular thing that is unlike anything else in the universe. And it's that inherited cultural predisposition that has fed this culture of human exceptionalism. The culture of human exceptionalism will at some very fundamental level be challenged by this new understanding. Let's say the opposite happens. Let's say next year, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, we're still asking where is everybody? And now we have tools that are so powerful that we are beginning, uh, that the evidence of absence is, uh, or the, the absence of evidence is starting to become the, uh, you know, the evidence of absence. Um, and uh, uh, we, we begin to suspect that it was a fluke, that this thing that happened here, you know, should never have happened that will also profoundly change our sense of what this planet is and what our curatorial resp responsibility to this place is. Well, exactly, because also I think one of the, the ironies is that um, Robin comes to an understanding uh, in part through uh, his uh, experience of uh, decoded neurofeedback and in part because of his, uh, his memories of his mother and, and what she did as a kind of a as an, an activist lawyer, essentially, for, for environmental causes, is that his answer to where is everybody is, well, a lot of them are, are all around us and we're just ignoring them, in mm, fact, yes. which are the, yeah. the various species which we are treating not as uh, fellow residents of the planet, but as something to be dominated and destroyed and used mm -hmm. essentially as our, as our playthings. And, and that seems to be, I guess, the... Uh, one one of Robin's central discoveries, at least as 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 the book goes on, is that the the sense of being alone. We we don't necessarily need to look out into the vastness of space to find 
creatures with whom to communicate they are we just need to look in our in our yeah. forests in our parks yeah in our but gardens the answer that the answer to the question where is everybody is they're here yeah and they're all around us and we have been failing to see just how intelligent and uh, full of agency uh they are mm-hmm. uh i did want to say that we've been, you know, we've been rightly um, discussing the science of the book, the astrobiology and the and the neuroscience of the book, but I feel that this book is a is a different kind of uh, adventure for me. Mm-hmm. It was it was for me uh, a journey into writing a much more exposed, much more personal much more intimate and much more mm. character driven kind of book mm. for whatever whatever father and son uh use to talk to each other however strange theo is and however strange robin is this is really a love story mm. it's it's a love story it's a triple love story in a way it's a love story of a man for a son who he can't really understand mm-hmm. and for whom he would do anything in his power to protect you know, from to, to protect from the world and from himself, uh, but he won't lie to the boy, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a love story of this nine-year-old boy for a mother who he's lost and mm-hmm. and who he's desperately trying to hold on to as his memory of this woman fades, and who he's trying to reach out and reconnect with uh, through his fear and through his terror, and then finally, it's a love story. Uh, between both of these boys, these lost boys, and the world around them, mm. as they, they begin to learn what it is that you just said, which is cultivating the capacity to hold still, to attend, to be present, is to fill the world again with an uncountable richness. And so I didn't, I wanted to make sure that readers for for whom the science still sounds a little intimidating, mm. know that there is a, a a great deal of recognizable uh, and 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 personal emotional story here mm. to attach to. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think also one thing that struck me, uh, particularly in the the case of um, Theo, because of course we're 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 in his mind so much, but also. Um, in the the depiction we get of um, Alyssa, um, it struck me that the fundamental decency of these characters, I guess, mm. um, with, with something in a strange kind of way, is quite rare to find in 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 fiction. Because I think often, perhaps, there's uh, easier sort of plot to be found in um, mm. characters essentially acting indecently um, mm. with each other. And one of the things that I really valued about Bewilderment was that you find a story and you find a deep sort of exploration of characters without having to perhaps resort to extreme behavior on any mm. of their part. These are mm. essentially fundamentally normal decent people grappling with the challenges that our contemporary society whether that be from a scientific perspective from an ecological perspective from a political perspective or from a personal perspective present to them you know i i'm i'm really encouraged to hear that i understand that what drives a lot of literary fiction 
is moral ambiguity. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a culture where meaning is primarily a personal thing that we invent for ourselves, by ourselves, uh, and w- which consists primarily of personal growth, accumulation of some kind, um, stories will be about how unresolvable it is that my meaning and your meaning don't align, mm. right? And the the story will be about how I will necessarily remain inscrutable to you and vice versa. And as we try to hammer out a common existence of some kind, we will reveal ourselves as being, you know, both admirable and flawed, um, uh, possessed of a certain uh, certainty, but also completely in the dark. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, you know, that, that kind of fiction has become extremely sophisticated and extremely polished. And we know that uh, we don't go to fiction in order to resolve those dramas. Mm -hmm. We go there to be unsettled, to have our own moral certainties taken apart Mm -hmm. uh, and and reconfigured as, as, you know, these incommensurable moral positions uh, 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 combat each other and Mm -hmm. collide with each other. When you begin to entertain the idea that there might be another way of thinking about humans on this world where meaning isn't just this private thing that we're constructing because we believe that we're the only creatures with agency and intelligence and consciousness, uh, but that we might need to broaden the concept of meaning to something that's held in trust and in community with other ways of being, then it allows fiction to to become something slightly different too. Mm. It allows for this joint pursuit of what that meaning might be like. Mm. And it, it oddly does reconfigure the ground rules of storytelling. And this thing that we were, you know, that, that I was taught and that my, you know, my students and the most people who were pursuing uh, careers in writing were taught, which is, you know, don't preach and, and don't, assert and and just question mm-hmm. right uh, just dramatize and uh, stay out of the way do not resolve moral ambiguities that you know that that prohibition goes away a little bit mm-hmm. and it, it allows us to tell stories that say well you know what would it look like for us to land back on earth to become a stable member of an interconnected reciprocally bound together community uh, to, what would interbeing look like? Mm. That, it, that is a moral question. But uh, you know, in, in order to, to explore that, we have to allow our fiction to begin to assert things again, mm. to begin to say, well, this actually might be useful for us. I think um, we're almost out of time, but I would just like to pursue that just a little bit more. Um, because I think it is it is crucial to the novel and is crucial to, in a sense, one of the the sort of background elements of the novel, which uh, you you made reference to very near the start, but which we haven't really discussed, is that this story takes place uh, against the backdrop essentially of political democratic breakdown 
uh, in the United States, which in certain ways mirrors what we saw over the the four years of the Trump presidency, but neither is it mappable completely on top of that. It's sort of a fictionalized um, extrapolation, maybe from 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 certain events over the last um, six years. Do you think that political instability that we're we're facing at the moment, alongside the ecological uncertainty that um, is manifesting itself more and more clearly with each with each week that goes past feeds into this 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 changing of dynamic that you were just talking mm. about do you think there was a certain decadence in a way to the novel perhaps over the past 50 years in that it it didn't have to concern itself with politics and moral certainty because somewhere at the back of our minds we more or less thought that those things had been taken care of mm, and that yeah. now we we don't have that certainty so now novelists in a sense are again rising up to 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 the challenge of of of, of interacting with them and and reasserting mm. something I, I think it's a brilliant observation adam you know uh, uh again it's 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 hugely complicated and the practitioners of of novels uh over the last several decades you know, cannot be uh, generalized in any way. Mm -hmm. But there, there is a way in which the moral ambiguity that we've become comfortable with in literary fiction obviously did spill out into the culture at large mm -hmm. and produce this moment of peril where we could have public figures saying, forget that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to replace, uh, truth with something that's more palatable to mm -hmm. you, right? And, and the hugely relativistic, uh, uh, you know, post-truth space uh, that we're living in now is, is one of, uh, uh, one of the, the most disturbing consequences of this culture that has come to be comfortable with this idea that we each make our own meaning. If we each make our own meaning, then we can each make our own truth. And that resulted in Trump America. Mm -hmm. And this book was written during the lockdown, during mm -hmm. pandemic. And there is a way, as you say, uh, that, that a reader will enter into this story and say, oh, I recognize 2019 America. Mm -hmm. uh, however, what, uh, you, you also pointed out that this book borrows that kind of speculative fiction near future quality of uh of the of that genre where the rules are slightly changed mm -hmm. uh it's a recognizable familiar world but we're on a different trajectory and it it, it borrows that and it actually moves it from the near future to a kind of near present mm -hmm. this book unfolds on a on a parallel earth and it was essential for me to do that because when I, when we were living through the last couple of years, it wasn't clear to us where this was all going to end. Right. In fact, it isn't clear to us sure. now. Right. But there was a moment as I was writing this book that I didn't know which was going to end first, mm -hmm. my novel or democracy in America. And I did complete the, the final draft of the book before the 2020 elections. Mm -hmm. But 
it was clear to me as I was writing in the run-up to the 2020 elections that there was going to be an attempt made on truth, that there was going to be an attempt made on the validity of the elections. All the groundwork was being laid to call this into question, just as all you know the the the, the administration had so uh, expertly called into question so much of. Uh, consensual expertise and and uh, scientific wisdom, and you know that becomes the texture of the book mm-hmm. as as Robin and Theo are making themselves uh, they're ma- they're making their way through the world, the the political the socio political realities of a world that is shedding the idea of shared truths is impinging on them and imploding on them. I needed, however not to do a realist take on 2019 America, because that would give the reader the luxury of saying, well, I, I, yeah, I do vaguely remember being unsettled by that as it was happening, right. but we landed safely and you know, yeah. we're okay now. <laughs> you know, I needed to reintroduce that estrangement, that sense of, oh my God, turn the page and where are we going to be? God only knows. And I, I needed to, to, to have that sense of, complete uncertainty reintroduced into the story. Mm. Well, that is all we've got time for, I'm afraid. Um, I'm sure it's come across to our listeners what an extraordinary book, I think, Bewilderment is. Um, Of course, it's available in Shakespeare and Company now uh, from the Shakespeare and Company website and from your local neighborhood independent bookstore, wherever that may be. Um, Richard Powers, best of luck for the booker in a couple of weeks' time. And all that remains for me to say is thank you so, so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Adam. The pleasure was all mine and hope to see you again before too many more years. I hope so too. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Fryman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading, and thanks again for listening.